I'm going to start straight in today with a story, which goes like this. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And that's the end of the story. And you might be wondering what happens next in the story, but there is no what happens next in terms of that specific story, even though it's a very short story. But it is a story that's direct, as read word for word, apart from one word that I put in which is little, from 2 Samuel 12, verse 1 to 4, from the Bible. It's a story from God that was given to a prophet called Nathan in the Bible. And it's a story that really very quickly catches your heart, gets you interested, pulls on the heartstrings. You can so quickly imagine the poor man and his family, that cutie little ewe lamb that he raised from birth. And the little ewe lamb ate with the family. You can imagine its own little place at the table with its knife and fork and, and its plate and sitting there on its little chair, nibbling along with the rest of the family. You can imagine him having his own cup and drinking his little drink of water. And you can imagine mum and dad or any of the children cradling the little ewe lamb in its arms and giving it the safety and security of peaceful sleep in such a loving action. It's great storytelling, which is why we get drawn into the story so quickly and which is why when the crunch of the story comes, there's such a punch to it, which makes us think that's, that's not a good end to the story. We don't like the end of that story. That rich ruler is a nasty piece of work. And there's a rise of indignance and a rise of anger that comes. And the story from the Bible given to the prophet Nathan by God was a story for someone. And it was a story, as some of you may know, or some of you might have guessed, for none other than King David. Famous King David, powerful King David, popular King David, pleasing King David, giant-killing King David, God-supported King David, uh, God-fearful King David, the people's champion, King David, who's God's man, he was a good King David. Good King David, that was the story that that story was given, person was given to. That was the person that story was given to. And when King David heard that story, as indeed perhaps some of us might have done just now, his heart was moved as well. There was a rise of emotion in him. And it says in Samuel that his heart burned with anger towards the rich man in that story because he knew that Nathan was probably bringing news that there was someone in David's kingdom to whom this story related and he was angry about it and he said this at the end of the story as surely as the Lord lives the man who did this deserves to die and we might all agree with that judgment made by King David. 
We're in a new series in Oasis Church, and it's called Songs for the Journey Part 2, and it's a series in the Psalms. And the reason that we've called it Songs for the Journey Part 2 is because uh, two or three years ago when we used to be at the Mac, we did a series in the Psalms then, and we called that Songs for the Journey. We didn't call it Part 1 because we didn't know there was going to be a Part 2. But now we're coming back to Psalms now, we've decided to call it Part 2. And there is, you know, approximately 150 Psalms in the Bible, touch less, I know. Uh, so we might get to Part 15 if we're here in 30 or 50 years' time. But anyway, Songs for the Journey are songs because Psalms are songs. And they are there for the journey of life. The Psalms give away what the the Psalmists that write them think about themselves, feel about themselves, feel about where they are in life, feel about God involved in their life, that kind of thing. We've got five Psalms that we're looking at over this series in Songs for the Journey Part 2. And Psalm 51, which is the Psalm that we are looking at today, is the Psalm that King David wrote as a result of the revelation that Nathan brought to him as a result of his outburst. What was his outburst again? As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. To which Nathan says, you are the man. You are the man, King David. You are the man reflected in this story. Because you are the man who, figuratively speaking, has taken a cutesy, lovely little ewe lamb and stolen it from that poor man and his family. You've not only stolen it, but you've cut it down. You've destroyed it. You've murdered it. You've not only murdered it, but you've cut the heart out of that poor man and his family as well. You are the man. So when you say, as surely as the Lord lives, you deserve to die, the you is you, King David. And so... This was a a catapult from the blue for King David. He had committed an abhorrent act. The reason that he was bringing judgment down on himself was because he had committed adultery with another man's wife. He'd seen this woman, Bathsheba, when he was kind of prancing around on his kingdom palace ceiling one day. We don't quite know how it works. He saw this woman. He fancied her. He decided he was going to have her. He took her. He made her pregnant. And then... He tried to make it look as though the, the, the child that she conceived belonged to the husband that was actually away on the battlefield. So he tried to rig up a few little events to make it look like it was her husband's after all. And when that didn't work, he came up with a plan to take the husband out, to get the husband murdered on the battlefield. You're talking here theft, you're talking conspiracy, you're, you're, you're talking cover-up, you're talking pretense, you're talking adultery, you're talking murder. You're talking dark, nasty, horrible stuff that happened by King David. And when that sort of thing happens in life, and you kind of hear about that kind of stuff happening on the news or friends and family or whatever, perhaps not murder so much, but when it happens to a normal person, just someone we're not even connected to, it turns our stomachs. We think, we hate this. We hate that kind of behavior. But when it's King David, God's chosen one, Popular King David, powerful King David, pleasing King David, giant killing King David, God's appointed King David, the man of God, the good king. When it's King David, how far the mighty fall? And this was a good man falling hard. So King David has this revelation that he's done this ghastly thing and we may ask, well, why didn't he get it before? But he gets this revelation and Psalm 51 
is the psalm that we're looking at today that is the psalm that he composed as a result of realising his sin. The question is, what's he going to say? What's he going to sing? And we're going to find out because Joe's going to come and perform it for us now. In this series, we're going to get all the psalms performed, not spoken. So Joe's going to bring this performance of this psalm, bearing in mind the backdrop, which is the revelation of the sin that David has just been uncovered. Oh God will 
Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous In burnt offerings offered whole And bulls will be offered on your altar On your altar Create in me a pure heart, oh God a steadfast spirit in me Do not cast me from your presence So take your Holy Spirit from me Create in me a pure heart, oh God And renew a steadfast spirit in me Do not cast me from your presence So take your Holy Spirit from me oh, Take your Holy Spirit from me think how Joe has composed that catches the heart of what David felt. The music, the song, his heart comes out in that song. And that's the whole point, that after David's catalogue of corruption, we get this cascade of confession, a, a river of repentance, a song of repentance, a psalm of repentance. It's a lament of love to a merciful and forgiving God. And it is moving stuff because he'd done a massive thing that was an atrocity, a huge blot on his life. And when he saw it, when he recognised it, God did something in him, and that's what came out. And so these songs for the journey are, are meaningful and they can be songs that we can apply in our lives as well. And this one is a little bit pithy if I can say that because it is around sin and it is around wrongdoing and it is around shadows or darkness that we might have in our lives this is around adultery and murder and cover-up that kind of thing and there might be that kind of thing in your life there may not be murder but there might be some dark stuff there might be some things that you're covering up there might be things that you've never been able to break free from that you know cause you trouble and the good news is that there is grace for you this morning, if that is you, to know that you can break free from it. Because David broke free from it by the grace of God. But if you have got stuff that you're carrying, I want to encourage you that freedom is on offer this morning. This day could be a day of freedom for you if you've got stuff in your life that you're thinking, I can never be forgiven for that, I can never break free from it, there's guilt, there's unease, whatever. Freedom can come today. Conversely, and this is uh, often something I say, when we address in church circles the whole subject of sin and skeletons in cupboards and that kind of stuff, you could be sitting here today and thinking, look, every time I go to church, that's all I ever hear. I hear some preacher guy starting to try and preach a gospel of grace and mercy and love and kindness, and they always start off by poking me in the eyes and saying, you're a sinner, and you just need to recognize that you are. Whereas you might be sitting in your seat thinking, I actually think that I'm quite a good girl or a good guy. I'm all right, thanks very much, Jack. And if that is you, that's okay, God likes us to think well of ourselves as well. Uh, God, God is a good God. King David was a good guy. And it's 
it's good to think well of yourself. It's good to have a right judgment of yourself, but it's good to think well of yourself as well. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to downplay the goodness of many men and women in this room and across the planet do so many good, great things. But the, the challenge for us, if that is you, is that King David, as I've just said, was God's king, and he was a good king. And yet he fell hard. He fell hard. And so we need to be careful that we don't just think that our good living is a ticket to never putting a foot wrong or saying something wrong or thinking something wrong. Something could suddenly happen that takes the rug out of our world. And when it does, when that sort of thing's happen, then all our good living sometimes looks a little bit of a sham compared to what might happen at that moment. So this psalm is a, both a warning to us if that's us, but also a way of showing us what could happen if that did happen, although I wouldn't want to put that on anybody either. So that's just a bit of context. It's a song of repentance. That's how we've titled this message today. And we're going to step through it with four subtitles. So the, the subtitles are these, conviction, confession, repentance, and restoration. Conviction, confession, repentance, and restoration, and it, it is, it's a, it's a psalm, a song, to open ourselves up to God over. It's not a woo hallelujah at this stage, it's a, oh my word, let's have a look at ourselves, have a look at our lives, and see what we think is a result of this. So the first is conviction, conviction. Already seen, I hope, that conviction for King David came through Nathan bringing that story to him. And the message there, it's a simple message, is that conviction of sin in our lives, conviction of wrongdoing in our lives, if indeed there is wrongdoing in your or my life, comes wholly and completely from God. It's a God thing. So if I was to stand here today and reel off a whole load of things that I thought might apply to you or I, that is wrongdoing in our lives, to try and kind of birth godliness, say, don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this, and don't do this, and if you're doing that, stop... And if you're doing that, it's inappropriate. You might want to think about doing it a different way and keep on going and going and going down a whole list of stuff. All that would be is a kind of mud-slinging hypocrite trying to birth something out of some emotive plea. When God takes hold of a heart and shows something that's wrong, boy, it goes deep. Conviction, when it comes, if it's going to be meaningful, is God's conviction. And this psalm is an example of God's conviction happening. Because God broke David, not Nathan. And we see it because in Psalm 51 verse 3, he says or sings this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I know it. My sin is always before me. It's as if I can't escape what I can see in front of me, which is my sin. And this was a good guy, a godly guy. 51.6, he goes even deeper. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. He suddenly recognises that perhaps he's not quite as good a king or a godly king as he always thought he might have been. I was sinful at birth. I can't escape a backlog of sin and wrongdoing in my life. Psalm 51, 17. My sacrifice, so beautifully sung by Joe, O God, is a, a broken spirit. The melody of that psalm communicated brokenness, didn't it? A broken spirit. When conviction comes from God, we're broken. And that's all right. It's all right to be broken when God brings brokenness. Because what it does is it softens our hearts and causes us to humble ourselves before him and then be open to whatever repair work he wants to do in our world as a result. So conviction is a God thing. That's the first thing. Second, we've got confession. Confession. And uh, it's an interesting thing because we can be moved or convicted by anything 
But unless it leads to action, it's just literally being moved or convicted. I don't know if, uh, if you ever watch things like Comic Relief or uh, Children in Need or stuff like that, and you're kind of watching, settling in for a Friday night of entertainment, and they interject the entertainment stuff with all the hard-hitting stuff about suffering and persecution, uh, loneliness, depravity, that kind of stuff. It's so easy sometimes in those moments, and I know I've been there, to be honest, where you're watching it and you're deeply moved. You're thankful for your own nice life, if that's the right thing to say, but you're also deeply moved on the other side of things. And you can be sitting there being deeply moved, waiting for the next entertainment feature to come along, and never actually get off your bottom and get on the internet or get on your phone or make a contribution or anything like that. So you're moved, but you're not moved to do anything about it. That's happened to me, I'm, I'm afraid to say. And I'm challenged even by saying it, I think, next time one comes along, practice what you preach and get moved and do something. In this context, David is convicted by God and what he does is he does something and what he does is he confesses it. He doesn't wriggle or squirm or make excuses or come up with some theology which is, well, everybody does this in my day so it's no big thing. He actually comes clean. He speaks word of confession that come out of his mouth. 2 Samuel 12, 13. I have sinned against the Lord is what he says. Psalm 51.4, against you, you only, have I sinned, and I've done evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Psalm 51.9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Psalm 51.11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. This is confession of sin that is raw and real and meaningful. He is taking action with the conviction that has come. I am going to speak it out. I'm going to tell God that I am a sinner, that I have done wrong. And that's the key point of this section because you can confess anything you like. You can be convicted and then confess it, but confession to God is a whole different ballpark to just saying, yeah, I did something wrong. There needs to be an understanding that when we do wrong in our lives, yes, we probably mess ourselves up and we mess other people up along the way as well. But actually, it's an affront to God because God is holy and he hates sin. He hates wrongdoing. He hates wrong thinking. He hates wrong doing. He hates wrong talking. And when we get a conviction from God that causes us to confess, we don't just speak it out for our own well-being, thinking, oh, well, I've done the right thing. I've confessed it now so I can move on. We've got to recognize that a confession to God makes a massive difference. Confession to God, because confession to God helps us to realize that we need forgiveness from God. We need to be forgiven for our wrongdoing. And verses 1 and 2 show you that. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Have mercy according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I need cleaning, Lord. I need repairing. I need help here. I need forgiveness. That's what King David is saying in those words. He's been convicted by God, but he's confessing to God his sin so that he can receive forgiveness from God. That's the process that we go through when we realize there are some skeletons in our cupboards that need to come out. But the amazing thing is, and again, you've got to read 2 Samuel 12 to get this, this psalm in the context. So if you, if you need to do that later, I'd encourage you to go and do it. In 2 Samuel 12, you get what happened as a result of the interplay after Nathan brought the story to King David. And as King David is saying, surely the man who did this must die and therefore is condemning himself almost to death because he realizes that the man is himself. In 2 Samuel 12 verse 13, Nathan says this, 
The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. And it's one of those kind of Old Testament pointers to the salvation plan of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, David wouldn't have understood it at that point in time, and Nathan perhaps didn't quite understand it, even though he was a prophetic guy. But he was basically pointer to the salva- pointing to the salvation plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus paid the price for all our sins on the cross. He's the one that took the penalty of sin. And this is a pointer saying, look, the Lord has taken your sin away through Jesus, and as a result, you're not going to die. And that's an incredible moment of grace offered at that moment, even in the darkest moment for King David, that there is a salvation plan, that God is not going to whap you and take you down. He's going to take away the sin penalty that comes with the horror that you have done. There is no sin that is beyond the saving power of Jesus. Nothing you have done or said or thought of, however grim you might think it might be, is beyond the saving power of Jesus. Jesus died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He died for all sins for all time, past, present and future. There is nothing that Jesus didn't die for. That's good news and there's a little indication, even in the Old Testament, that that good news plan was in playing. God knew what he was doing. So confession comes, but confession comes to God in order to receive forgiveness from God and that forgiveness comes through belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then what next? Repentance. Repentance. And repentance is, in my opinion, a a U-turn word that evidences that you've had an encounter with God. So U-turn word that evidences you've had an encounter with God. So if you do get some conviction from God, and then you start confessing something to God, saying, oh, woe is me, I'm a broken man, or I'm a sinful man, a bit like Peter and Jesus, saw Jesus for who he was, said, go away from me, Jesus, I'm a sinful man. When you get to that point, then repentance is basically saying and it doesn't just stop there all of a sudden now i'm not going to go my way i'm going to go god's way i've had an encounter of the holy wonderful living god i know i need his grace and mercy and forgiveness but i'm so moved i'm so convicted that i'm not just going to stay here and think that was a nice experience i'm going to resolve to live a life that follows him with intention from that moment on repentance is a u-turn moment that evidences you've had an encounter with god If you are a follower of Jesus here today and you haven't had that kind of encounter, you're in danger of just doing good works. You need to understand and having an encounter with God changes it from just a whole load of ticking boxes in the Christian life to I've got a passion and a desire to follow you wholeheartedly because I need you in my world. I cannot do life without you. And David in the psalm, his repentance is clear. He says to me, create in in me a pure heart, O God, and Renew a steadfast spirit within me. 17, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. I'm so broken before you, I want to go your way. Create in me a steadfast spirit to consistently go after you rather than go my way, which, I've shown, which he's shown to be an abhorrent and atrocious way of going. Repentance evidences encounter with God. And I want to encourage us, if we are followers of Jesus, Keep on a repentant path. Repentance is an ongoing daily thing. It's not just, oh, I've done it once and that's it. You've always got to be making choices in your days, in my days, about what it means to go God's way, not our way. Because the world throws the world's way at us all the time. 
And so we need to be sharp thinking, what's God's way? What's God's way? What's God's way? My experience of God is going to be one that throws me his way, not my own way. So that's repentance. So you've got conviction from God, confession to God, uh, repentance, which is an evidence of an encounter with God. And then you've got restoration, the final thing, restoration. And this, this one's in the Psalms as well, as we'll see in a minute. And it's a hard one because it is true to say that we are human beings. If there's anybody in this room here today that isn't a human being, then come and see me afterwards and we'll have an interesting chat. But the, the point is this, that when we mess up as human beings, and we do, and as followers of Jesus, we will mess up as well. When we do that, even if we are convicted, and even if we confess to God, and even if we have an encounter with God which causes us to repent and go God's way, we still often carry huge amounts of emotive guilt, I would say, and regret and unease. And we can't just kind of shake it off just like that as though it didn't happen. If I, um, on the occasions where I, I have arguments with my wife, for example, and I'm, it's real life and we, it does happen, when that happens both of us feel an intense sense of unease and discomfort about the whole thing. It's not until one of us is mature enough to take the step to try and resolve the conflict and get reconciled that any sense of healing, if that's the right word for it, comes along. So, and when the healing does come along, we obviously have that delightful moment of thinking, oh, the, the pain to some degree has gone, the angst goes at that moment. But you're still carrying a sense of, regret or hurt you can't just shrug off and think oh everything's fine now because you've there has been something that's happened that's hurt and it's still there so the question is how do we what do we do with that and this is part of the kind of restoration point in this psalm now before we get to that point I would say this that 1 John 1 verse 9 a verse in the bible says it's absolutely the case that Jesus forgives us for our sin and when he does it's a done deal that, that you need to know that. So 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from every kind of unrighteousness. In other words, if we convicted, if we confess our sins to God, and if we make it our intention to repent of our sins, then we are forgiven. And it doesn't matter how we feel about it, the cross of Christ has caused our sins to be forgiven. That's a fact. It doesn't matter whether we feel it's true or not, it is true. So forgiveness is true through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But if we've got these, this, these feelings of unrest or guilt, we can't break free from it, what do we need to do in order to help that go away? And the answer is we need to ask God to restore us, to restore us. David prays it like this in uh, verse 12. He says to me this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's basically saying, look, I want re restoration, Lord, and I want to have a fresh revelation of what it means to be rescued by you. I want ongoing revelations of what it means to be re rescued by you. And if I get ongoing revelations, even in my sin, I, my heart is going to be lifted to a place of, this is amazing, restoration is amazing, my salvation is amazing, the joy that came through Jen's prayer right at the beginning of the worship, joy is available to me, and your heart lifts because you're receiving joy from God rather than dwelling on the negative of what's happened. So that's one thing, looking for fresh revelation of the joy of salvation. 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Which is basically King David saying, look, I'm going to become an advocate of grace and mercy. An advocate of grace and mercy and forgiveness because I've received it and understood it myself. If you've, if you've received forgiveness from Jesus... You understand what he's done for you, wiping away your sins, giving you a clear conscience before God and man. If you become an advocate for that and start telling other people about it, your soul starts 
imbibing it, if you like. The more you speak truth, the more you believe the truth to be true. And the more you share the grace of God and the mercy of God with other people, the more restored you are and the less guilt that you will feel for the things that you've done wrong in your life. That's what King David is saying there. And then finally, verse 14 and 15, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The guilt of bloodshed is murder of Bathsheba's husband. You who are God my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Or in other words, my encounter, my repentant encounter with God, in order to help you transform me, Lord, is that I'm going to become a worshipper. Whatever I feel inside, I am going to worship you, God. And this can often be the case when we gather as a community. You might not feel like it, but as soon as you get your head off yourself and up to God, looking to the mountains where my hope comes from, then all of a sudden you get a rise in your spirit. And all the stuff that you carried into any corporate meeting environment of the day or the week or whatever, it disappears when you receive the grace and mercy of God because you're worshipping God and God meets you in your intention and transforms you to become convinced of what you believe in to be true. So worshipping God and becoming a worshipper of God is a way of God restoring you and helping you realise that your sin has been dealt with, although it has been dealt with full stop anyway. So those are three things from the Psalms that come through. The final thing I would just say on this one, which is, which is an interesting one, is that restoration is all, has also an element of repairing the damage that you've done through whatever sin that you've carried out. So in, in David's case, and it's, it's a little bit awkward with this one, because David, um, if, if you go back to, to Samuel, he, uh, he committed adultery, he got Bathsheba pregnant, uh, the child that was due actually died. I won't go into the story. And then you think at that point, with the remorse, the regret, the conviction, the confession, the repentance, the encounter, the restoration that David wants, you would think that David at that point might think, well, so how do I deal with this in a godly manner? What's the right thing to do at this point, having, having taken Bathsheba and having got rid of Bathsheba's husband? What would you or I do in that situation? I might like to think that I, if I was in that situation, and I wouldn't want to be, but if I was... I'd like to think probably the wrong thing to do at this point is to carry on in a relationship with Bathsheba. I probably think the right way of resolving this and showing my heart of repentance to God is to, in, a, in a, an appropriate manner, basically say to Bathsheba, look, I've completely messed up here. Uh, let's sort you out in some different way, shape or form. But I don't think I'm going to be in a relationship with you now because that's my way or a way of sorting it out. Now, that's just a suggestion to you. You can go and read the story yourself and see what you think you might do yourself. In the Bible, into Samuel 12, he doesn't do that. He has another baby with Bathsheba. He stays with Bathsheba, as we may, we may know. The baby that he has after the first one's died is none other than Solomon, who becomes King Solomon. It carries on the family line, if you like. And I read that and I think, I don't quite get that in terms of the, what David then did in order to resolve the difficulty that he got himself into. But what I then also do is think, man, that's incredible grace from God at the same time. That through the woman who he stole from her husband, through that murderous, coveting, conspiratorial, horrible set of circumstances, God still nevertheless blesses David through the birth of Solomon via Bathsheba. Now, I'll tell you that story, A, from a, a grace point of view, but B, from the, the point of view, is did he, did he quite look at what had happened and resolve it all? And I was chatting to someone this morning who uh, perhaps is a greater Bible scholar than I am and, and was suggesting that Bible, uh, King David's kingship after this point 
wasn't ever quite as clear or clean or godly as it had been up to that point. And had he resolved it in a slightly different way, it might have been a different story. I bring that to you for you to wrestle with in your own time. But I just wanted to say that restoration has all those things that I've mentioned already, which is worshipping and recognising your own forgiveness and being an advocate of it and having a desire for a steadfast heart and all that kind of stuff. But there's also a sense of, if I have done wrong, looking practically as to how I can restore the situation in a way that best serves everybody that's been involved. And don't think you can just do something rubbish and then forget about the mayhem that you've left behind you. So that's the restoration point. So there they are. So you've got conviction, confession, repentance, and restoration. And the story of this psalm, I'll say it again, is that no one but no one is beyond the grace and mercy of God. No one but no one is beyond the grace and mercy of God. No one but no one is beyond the grace and mercy of God. And Richard Sibes, who's a 16th century Puritan theologian, writes, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us, which I think is really powerful. More mercy in Christ than there is sin in us, which basically says, let's, let's be real, we're all in this room today, and what do I know? Probably, I would hope, none of us have murdered anybody. Probably. But if you have murdered anybody, discuss later, perhaps. The point is... There are things in our lives that we might think aren't quite as bad or as dark or as nasty as that in and of itself, that thing. We like to think we're nicer people than that. But there are things in our lives that are still abhorrent to God. There are still things that we're doing that are secret, that are silent, that are hidden, that are covered up. There might be things in our world that we've done in our world to date that we think, I can't break free from it, I know I did it, it's still there, I'm still trapped by it, I want freedom. Those things are probably still there. And this psalm says, look, freedom is on offer. God can bring beauty out of ashes. All we need to do is open our hearts, be humble before God, and say, all right, God, here I am. Here's the thing. I want your conviction. I am going to confess it. I desire to encounter you and repent from it. And please, by all and every means, will you restore me so that that thing doesn't dog me ever again and I can be an advocate of how good you are and and draw people into worshipping God rather than being condemned by sin for the rest of their days. That is what this psalm is bringing. And that's what I felt God wanted to bring from this psalm today, a, a bit of a, a wrestle into our hearts, into our consciousness, to say, what things are there in your life, in my life, that God may need to put his little finger on today? I said this in the first meeting, and I say therefore in this meeting, it will be a miss of me to just preach the word and then not give us a chance to respond to what's been said, because this is heavy stuff in some respects. But I don't at the same time want to make it a moment where we're exposed as people because it's not a question of saying, I want to know what your sin is and you probably want to know what mine is. But if there is something in your life that you've never confessed, we're going to find out today and you're going to put your hand up and everybody's going to say, I wonder what it was. Are you the murderer? We're We're not going to do that, but we are going to respond. And the way that we're going to do it is I'm going to ask you all to stand. So just stand up. And then we're going to, I'm going to run through five questions You might want to shut your eyes just so that you can concentrate on God. I'm going to ask five questions, and then I'm going to give us a potential exercise to do in the week that's ahead. So it's not a now thing, although the decision to do the thing is a now thing. But only this may only apply to one or two of you. It could apply to all of us. I'm just saying they're questions that I think God 
wants to ask of us. So here are the questions. Am I open to God's conviction in my life on something that I know is there, but I'm a bit nervous about confessing that it is there? Or am I running scared, hoping that that will never happen? Is there something in your life that you're hoping that God never convicts you over? And even as I'm saying it, you're thinking, Gus, move off this point because I don't want that conviction to come. Second, are there things in my life that I need to come clean on and get right with God? Similar kind of thing. Third, how do I feel about a U-turn in life based on an encounter with God where I become second and God becomes first? Have I had that moment in my life where I'm saying I'm repenting of my sin and I'm following you wholeheartedly? Fourth, perhaps a strange one, do I actually want to become a worshipper of God? Or am I just going through the motions of church life and Christian life? And finally, do I feel so good about myself that I'm dangerously vulnerable to a crashing fall? So good you think nothing will ever touch me and God is saying just be careful because something might come and grab you. If any of those questions are striking a chord with you now, and you're thinking, that is me, actually, that is me, then what I'd love you to do, what I felt God say in the first meeting to do, is not to do anything other than resolve this week to read this psalm again. To read this psalm again in your own time at some point in the next seven days. Read this psalm again, remembering whatever it is that God's putting on your heart right now that might be you, and bringing it to him. And then, perhaps slightly more tricky, is tell somebody who you know and love what it is. A good confession. Someone who you know and love. Not someone you don't know that well, or you don't, doesn't love you, because that's just exposing. That'll just make you feel vulnerable. But if you go to someone and say, look, I've really struggled with this for ages. God laid on my heart on Sunday. I heard this preach from Psalm 51. I've read Psalm 51 again. And I just need to tell you, and I just need you to pray with me, and I need you to stand with me, and I need you to, to ask me to be filled with the Spirit and all that kind of Do that. That's what it is. So if that's you, I'm going to pray now, and then we'll close. Then I just encourage you to act on that this week. It's not exposing. It's between you and God. But I believe that freedom could come for you as a result of it. So, Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the psalm that Joe brought and the way that resonated so deeply with our emotions. And we thank you, Lord, for all that we can learn about your servant, David, who realized his sin and still found you and knew what it was like to be saved by you. And I pray for all my friends in this room, Lord God, that if your hand is on any, of, any person here to bring the right sense of conviction, to want to pull out a confession, to instigate a desire for repentance, to want to become a worshiper, Lord, that you do that, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work, that lives would change today as a result of an encounter with you, and that freedom would come as a result of that encounter. And I pray it for the good of my friends in this room, for their clear conscience before God and man, but also for the glory of your name, that it would be another example of your saving grace coming rushing through in different people's lives. And I pray that to the glory of your name. Amen. <laughs>